This is the Anthem CDA podcast, a church in the heart of downtown Coeur d'Alene. Join us as we seek the presence of God, learn from his word, and build lifelong connections. We hope this week's teaching brings life and encouragement. Welcome to Anthem. Um, I did just do baptisms, so I didn't like go in my pants or do anything weird. It's just water left over from the baptisms. Just preface that so none of you think I had an issue this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Man, that, that joke did not go over very well. Um, <laughs> you can leave if you want to. It's all good. I understand. Uh, this morning we wrap up our two weeks of prayer and fasting that we've been in the middle of, and last night we had this worship night, and it was amazing. Thank you for all of you that came out. It was just a really sweet and special time, and we'd love to hear any stories or testimonies of maybe how God has moved in your life in the last couple of weeks, and if you wouldn't mind coming grabbing one of us and sharing that, we just would love to hear those stories. How did God move in your life through two weeks of laying some things down intentionally in order to pick up the things that really matter. And so what a journey it's been. It's been amazing. Uh, For me, there's been some really profound moments that I've had with the Lord in the last couple weeks and some things I'm still seeking him for. But um, it's a blessing to serve him. It's a blessing to sometimes deprive yourselves of things so that we can actually focus on the things that matter. So this morning as we dig into the book of Mark, I want to reiterate that uh, historically as a church, we go book by book or verse by verse through books of the Bible, and that's really intentional in the sense that we don't want to miss anything. We want to talk about every facet of the word that we're reading and help you guys put the pieces together. And so we'll dig into Mark chapter 2, verses 2 through 8 this morning. Let me pray for us before we get going. Uh, Jesus, we acknowledge you as... King of kings and Lord of lords, I thank you for the work that you're doing in these three people's lives that were baptized this morning. I pray you continue to fan that flame, Jesus. I pray you'd bless them, that your spirit would be at work, not only in their lives as individuals, but in their families and in their workplace. Lord, that you would just radiate through every pore in their bodies, that people would see Jesus in them and moving through them. Um, God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for opportunities to study it, to learn about it. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd meet with us during this time. God, I know that uh, there's some of us this morning that just come here a little bit malaise. Um, We come here maybe a little bit static and not maybe not knowing where you're at or what you're doing, what their purpose is. I pray, Jesus, that in this time that they would see you, they would hear from you, that you would speak to us. We know that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray this morning that your word would go deep into our hearts and would accomplish the work that you intend for it to do. And we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we started this new series to the book of Mark. And I got through all of one verse last week. So that was pretty impressive. Um, this This morning, we're going to get through a handful more, and we're going to look at Mark, again, 1, 2 through 8, and as you find you guys way there, like open your Bibles, I'd love for you guys to actually have paper Bibles, if you have them, bring them, your journals that are, if you want to open those, open your phones, whatever it is, but open up to the Word, because I want you to follow along, and as you find your way there, I want to ask you a question um, that I actually do encourage you to respond to this morning. What are some of your favorite books or movie franchises? Not everybody wants. Back to the Future. Marvel. Star Wars. Anybody else? What? The Chosen. (laughs) I'll pretend that one was not said. All right, anybody else? What? I didn't hear what you said. (laughs) Twilight. Oh, Tony. Tony, the the closet Twilight fanatic. 
Um, okay, so when we think about these, these, these stories, we think about these series that we love, um, we like these kinds of stories, don't we? We, we like these narratives. A large percentage of our culture does because they tell these arching, sort of like sweeping narratives over the course of years. And sometimes these, these narratives even change from generation to generation to generation as older generations then, or like the younger generations then pick up something from the past generation and recreate it, or they add to the series. And you get to know these characters over the course of these series. And you get to understand why one particular moment in this series is, is significant because of everything else that happened before it. You can kind of put the pieces together. We once had a group of friends in Seattle, people from all different backgrounds um, when we were living there, that met weekly to watch the show Friends. Anybody, anybody watch Friends? Okay. Some people in this room were part of this group with us, I will say that. And we met weekly and we had dinner and we watched Friends. This was before streaming TV, everybody. You actually had to wait for the day and the time that the show came on to actually catch the show. Um, otherwise, you'd miss it. And so we would meet weekly, we'd watch this show. And it was interesting to watch shows unite people from different cultures and different backgrounds. I mean, we had skateboarders in the room. We had like people from just all different. It was a hodgepodge of people but we all were united around sharing dinner together and watching the show. It was a really, really neat moment in Heather and I's early, early years as a married couple. But this is also why streaming platforms have begun to create these mini-series and these docu-series. Recently, I started watching one of these shows, and there's like 10 or 12 seasons in the show. And um, I had never seen it before. I've heard a lot about it. And so I'm the type of person that's like, man, I don't really want to go a decade back and watch the old stuff. And so I'm like, I'm just going to pop in at season 10. And so Heather and I put on season 10 when we started watching it. And we were like, who's that guy? Like, what? like, I'm so confused right now because we didn't have any context as to who these characters were, what the storyline was, how to put these things together. And so, again, one story in, we realized there's so much backstory, or one season in, we realized there's so much backstory that we were not aware of. Like, I have no clue who these characters are, their relationships to one another. And so there are hours and hours of backstory in this show. If I would go back through the seasons and watch more of them, and there's no way to find a summary of it um, that does it justice. Like, I can't just say, hey, would you tell me what this show's about? I mean, if somebody was to give me a snapshot, it still wouldn't do it justice because it wouldn't put all the pieces together. Have you ever tried explaining, like, a summary of a show to your friend who wants to watch the show only to realize that the summary doesn't do it justice? They're like, tell me about it. And you're like, I can't really summarize it, you know, because you have to know all the backstory and the context in order to really get it. Imagine if you're watching, like, I don't know, season 39 of Grey's Anatomy, you know, like I don't even know how many seasons there are of that. And, and somebody was like, you know, like McDreamy shows up on the screen and you have no idea who Patrick Dempsey is and you're like, like, what's the big deal? And you're like, somebody's like, what's the big deal? You're like, I, it's McDreamy, like you have to know who he is. And they're like, I have no context. There's 30, you know, bazillion shows prior to this that give some context to help you understand who this person is. And so there's this question that Christians, Christians have been asking really since the first century. And, and that is, what are we supposed to do with this thing that we call the Old Testament? What are we supposed to do with it? It's the backstory of all backstories. And so you'll hear it referred to sometimes as a, a couple different things. The Old Testament, sometimes it's called uh, the Hebrew scriptures or the Jewish scriptures. Um, there's, a, there's a commentator, an Old Testament scholar that calls it the First Testament, which sounds appropriate. Because even in the title Old Testament, it gives it sort of a sense of like how we treat it and respect it, right? Oh, that's the old. I don't care about the old. I just want to like get onto the new stuff, the good stuff. Like it's that one that we don't really use anymore when we refer to it like as the Old Testament. Those other 39 books, those 39 books of the Bible, like those, those things are gory, they're scary, they're weird. Like I don't even want to get into those. It's not Jesus like I really, really like. I just want to study the things that I really, really like and I like the New Testament. 
So Christians have been asking this question for centuries, and if you're in the middle of like reconstructing, deconstructing your faith and trying to figure it out, and and you're like, I really love Jesus and his way, but I don't know what to do with this Old Testament. I don't know how to make sense of it. Well, I'm I'm sort of sorry because there's nothing new about that question, right? It's been around for a while, like what do we do with it? There was this guy that he, he was actually a bishop, and his name was Marcion. And Marcion had this aha moment about what to do with the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures. A really interesting dude. And uh, in fact, there's a whole idealism around him called Marcionism. Marcionism. And his idea was that in Jesus, we have the the revelation of God, like the highest God, the the most authority. But in the Old Testament, Marcion said that what was... uh, he said that what was actually a different God that existed in the Old Testament was this, uh, what they called the Demiurge, who's this evil, he's this wicked God, and Christians don't believe in that one, they only believe in the God of the New Testament, and so this is what Marcion said, like as if those Hebrews, like the Jews, were just worshiping the wrong God the whole time. And so Jesus was the one who showed us the one true God, and everything that came before was just nonsense to him. And so Marcion actually said that something along the lines of he he wanted Christianity to be, quote, untrammeled and undefiled by association with Judaism. What a gnarly statement. What a horrible statement. Like, it almost screams of anti-Semitism. It's gross. And so what he was doing, though, is he was doing his best to make sense of this thing called the Old Testament, but he swung in a direction that was way too far to say that it was completely different from God. Now, you'll hear me over the course of many, many years that I get to teach here say things about how Jesus does reveal God to us and he shows us things about God that, that we didn't know. And that's very, very different than saying that it was not God at all in the first place. So Marcion had this big problem with his theory, which was eventually came out as a heresy by the the early church referred to it as a heresy. And the big problem with this theory is that when you look at the first chapter of Mark, you read the beginning or the reign of the good news. Last week we talked about the euangelion, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, this, this explosive sentence in verse one that we talked about last week about the revolution that Jesus was carrying out that is a political like reality about what happens here on earth as it is in heaven. So Mark begins his gospel this way. He says, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then he says, as it is written in Isaiah, if you look at verse two, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, can you hand me my water, Mike? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, thank you. So what's interesting about that statement is when he says, as it is written in Isaiah, what's he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And so Mark begins his story about Jesus by referencing what came before. And so today we're going to talk about what's old and what's new. And then we have to sort of, in response to this, figure out, like, how do we carry this out? What does this mean for you and I today? And so Mark begins his gospel this biography about Jesus, by connecting it to everything that happened before Jesus. Like, you have to understand the Old Testament in order to understand what it is that Jesus fulfilled, because Jesus, even though he's doing a new thing, he's not completely changing course, right? N.T. Wright says, Jesus unexpectedly, surprisingly, in brand new ways, does exactly what God had always said that he was gonna do. And so we read from verses two through three. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, he says, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark begins this gospel by talking about this messenger that the prophets had said would come before the Messiah. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about this John the Baptist guy this morning. Now, Mark says he's quoting from Isaiah, but it actually would be really common for someone to say, I'm quoting from Isaiah, But what's interesting with Mark is that he actually mashes together a few different passages in this verse, right? He he actually mashes together three different quotes from Old Testament texts. And so in this one quote in verse two, we have, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way. 
And then the following, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. So we actually get a quote from Malachi. We get a quote from the book of Exodus. We get a quote from Isaiah, all wrapped up here in this one quote that Mark gives. And so the first book um, that, he, that he talks about is, or quotes is out of Malachi, chapter three, verse one. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And then to finish that quote, he says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Read a couple of verses down in that Malachi passage. So in other words, Mark's sort of bringing to mind this prophecy that God is gonna send a messenger. He's gonna send somebody to be the spokesperson for God. And then God would show up at the temple, and this was sort of part of the expectation for the Israelites, for the Jews. And so if you remember, Israel had been called out of Egypt. They'd been made into a nation. David and Solomon built this temple for Yahweh, God. And then eventually the nation is split into two. The northern half was exiled by the Assyrians. The southern half had been exiled by the Babylonians. The temple had been destroyed. And then Cyrus comes along from the Persian Empire, allows the Jews to go back, rebuild the temple. And now if you track biblical history, there's this similar scene that every time the Jews build a tabernacle or they build a temple, they build it and then the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Or the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord fills it. And then Solomon builds a temple and the glory of the Lord fills it. And then after the exile, they build a temple and nothing happens. It's this interesting moment. In fact, the scriptures say that the people wept because the temple, the glory of the temple was nothing like the one that had come before. And so Israel is still waiting for the exile to end and for God to return to his people. And that's what Malachi is prophesying about. Malachi says, look, I'm gonna send my messenger and then God is gonna show up on the scene. The messenger is gonna come and then God himself is gonna arrive. And again, this sort of has impl implications for what Mark is trying to say about who Jesus is. Now, Malachi is actually doing his own quoting here. So Malachi's looking back at Exodus chapter 23, which is about God and Israel at Mount Sinai, like think about the Ten Commandments. And God is there carving into tablets of stone and he has this, his very own presence is there. And God says, I'm about to send a messenger or an angel in front of you to guard you on your way to bring you to a place that I've made ready. So as Malachi is saying, get ready, Israel, the exile may not be over yet, but God is actually gonna show up like he showed up at Mount Sinai. God's actually gonna show up again, just like he showed up at the Red Sea. God's gonna show up again, just like he showed up when you crossed over the Jordan and you entered in the promised land. Like God is gonna show up, he's gonna show up again. That's what Mark is saying. He's like, God is on his way. There's, some, there's one that's coming before him, but there's that one that's coming before him is paving the way for God to come. And so Mark finishes the quote by actually quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five, and it says this. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And then a few verses later in verse nine, he says, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. There's that word again. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. And so Mark begins his gospel with what? Verse one, we talked about it last week. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, but also in Malachi and in Exodus. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So now in, in Malachi's day and in Exodus's day and in Isaiah's day and Mark's day, when people said prepare the way for the Lord, they, they weren't thinking about Jesus because Jesus hadn't shown up on the scene yet. That wasn't their first thought. They were thinking about Yahweh. They were thinking about God that God himself would show up on the scene. They didn't know what that would look like. Like Jesus wasn't in their mind, but they knew that God would show up. And so Mark 1, 4, he says, John the Baptist appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so I, I, I know today is a lot of information, but I wanna help you connect the dots because this is easily a passage we can just kind of jam through 
and, and just say John was paving the way for Jesus and then enter Jesus and let's just get into the good stuff. But I want you to understand how the Jewish people would have received this word, what it was they were thinking in their minds. And so we talk about something old and, and I want you to remember is that Jesus, without the Old Testament, without the Hebrew scriptures, without the prophecies and the build up to this point in the story, Jesus is a bit cryptic. He doesn't actually make sense without those dots put into place for us in the Old Testament. And so we can talk a lot about his moral teaching, we can talk a lot about Jesus' ethical teaching, we can talk about his death and his resurrection and all of these great things, but all of that is a climax to a story that actually starts in Genesis. And so when we cut that off and we say we don't need that anymore, like we're just focused on the New Testament. In fact, it's about a different God, even as Marcion said. Then we're sort of disconnecting Jesus from the story that he's actually the climax to. The whole book is about him. It's like jumping in partway through your favorite series and saying, well, I hope you understand all these references that are happening here. They probably will go over your head. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's finishing a story that is already in progress. It's been ongoing. Just because there's continuity with what came before doesn't mean that something new isn't happening. And so John the Baptist appears in the wilderness and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So in some of the stories that you'll read about new inventions, like anybody gone back and read stories about like the horseless carriage when it was invented? What became the car, you know? Um, you know, the, 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 you'll often hear these stories when you go back and you read these stories about people that invented things. Um, that, that the original inventors would call banks for investments and they would want investments in this idea, this product that, we, that they have. And the banks would reject them because they would say, that's just a fad. There's actually no need for that thing. There's no way that these horseless carriages are going to go anywhere. This is so stupid. Why would you possibly need to replace the horse? It's been good for centuries, right? Like, it's not going to fail us now. Cars are just doing the same thing, but they're more expensive, they require more fuel, they make fumes, like it's just not worth it, just go back to the horse. A horse is a lot easier to care for, and we can obviously see how wrong they were, because as the cars developed, I mean, it's become a staple of our transportation here in the world. And so they're just doing the same thing, and yet they, they took over the world, cars did. And so there's a continuity with what came before, Yet there's actually this sort of discontinuity that makes a new world. And so we'll see this in John the Baptist and in Jesus because John the Baptist, appeared, the Baptist appears in the wilderness and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so here's some of the sort of continuity and discontinuity. Number one is the wilderness. He's in the wilderness. John the Baptist appears in the wilderness. And this is the key, like crucial word for the Israelites, for the Jews. Because some of the coolest stories in the Old Testament actually happened in the wilderness. Like they had context for this. The, the wilderness, like we hear that word and we think, I don't want to go out there, right? Some of you in this room are like, please put me there. I love the wilderness, right? How many of you are like, no, thank you? Thank you, that, that's me. You know, I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm not a camper. Um, but the wilderness is where God did some of his best work with God's people. It was in the wilderness. That's where God shows up at Sinai. It's where God splits the Red Sea. It's where Elijah meets God in the wilderness. It's where God often reveals God's character in the wilderness. And so there, there was this expectation when God showed up on the scene, filled the temple with glory again, and he began to make the world new that it would begin in the wilderness, like that it would spread to the rest of creation, but it would start in the wilderness. And so John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness and there's a little bit of hope and there's a little bit of expectation, like that's kind of intriguing. Like could this be the beginning of what we hoped for? Could it be the beginning of what we expected because God has always done his best work for us in the wilderness? But many false messiahs had shown up at this period of time. If you didn't know that, like during John the Baptist's day, during Jesus' day, there were other messiahs that showed up and claimed to be messiahs that were false messiahs. They would begin their ministry in the wilderness, these false messiahs would. 
Because for them, they knew that that would send a message to the rest of the Israelites, to the Jews. And so during the time of John the Baptist and Jesus, there, there was this community in the caves of Qumran, and there was a group of people called the Essenes that, that lived in these caves. And they believed that they were the ones who were gonna spark the beginning of the new age, right? And so they camped in the wilderness, and this is right where John starts his story, in this backyard. But he's doing something new there. What is John doing, anybody? He's baptizing. He starts something new there. Now, baptism was not an old concept or a new concept for the Jews either. Like, we think baptism and we think what we just did here, which is great. We have this available to us today. The Jews thought of baptism in a completely different manner. Baptism was like a purification ritual. Baptism was even one of the ways that a Gentile, like a non-Jewish person, would make the change from a non-Yahweh worshiper to a Yahweh worshiper. They would do that through the waters of baptism. And so the Jews would say, okay, Gentile, you wanna become one of us? You need to be circumcised. You need to obey the, the kosher laws. You need to uh, uh, obey the Torah. And in order to show that you're being reborn into this new family of Abraham, you're gonna actually have to be baptized into these waters. And so John the Baptist is doing something kind of scandalous, actually, because he's baptizing people, but he's not doing it to the Gentiles. Who's he baptizing? The Jews. And so he's saying, like, hey, fellow Israelites, you too need to be baptized into the new thing that God is doing. And if you look into the other gospels, you'll see this, that the scandal like sort of creates this fuss because people would go to John and they would say, we're already children of Abraham. We don't need this baptism. And John the Baptist, and John the Baptist would say like, you know, whatever children of Abraham. God can make children of Abraham out of these stones if he wants to. But the heart and the soul is what is being transformed in the midst of baptism. It was about access to the heart. And so John the Baptist is in the wilderness. He's preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And look at verse five. He says, in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Maybe hundreds of thousands of people are going out to be baptized by this man in the droves and they're all Jews. Again, there's a huge amount of like imagery happening here because the River Jordan is also where Israel had crossed over from the non-promised land into the promised land. John the Baptist is sort of reenacting this moment in history for them. There's so much symbolism that's taking place in this moment. Verse six, he says, and now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Any John the Baptist in the room this morning? I wanna go pound some locusts after church, break our fast. Um, this is a really weird detail to put in, right? How this dude's dressed, what he actually lives off of, like to plop that in the middle of the story that's being told is sort of weird. But again, it's part of something old and it's also part of something new because this is actually quoting 2 Kings 1 which is describing Elijah the prophet. And it uses the exact same phrase that was used to describe Elijah the prophet. It says, he described him, to, the king says, he described him to, uh, to me, and Elijah is described as one wearing the clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. The, the book of Malachi, which we've already talked about, Malachi says, look, I'm gonna send Elijah the prophet to you before the great and terrifying day of the Lord arrives. Talk about that in a little bit. But again, we, we see this sort of discontinuity and this continuity. We see this old and this new. There's something old happening, that there's wilderness and there's water, there's this river Jordan, there's all this stuff that's happened before that seems to be happening again, but in like new and unexpected different ways that they can't necessarily make sense of, and it's sort of creating the scandal, like creating the sense of expectation, the sense of like even offense and purpose in the Jewish people. Because some people are coming out and they're getting baptized by this John the, John the Baptist, but understand that some of them are refusing to be a part of it. They don't want to have anything to do with this because for them, this, this seems like they're adhering to something wrong. Why should we have to go get baptized? 
So in our day, it can be really tempting for us to take Jesus and then to begin to reduce Jesus down to like a really nice moral teacher. We just follow his ways because he was a great teacher and a good person. We reduce Jesus down to merely someone that we can sort of apply our own ethics and our own morals to. Because I'm a nice person and Jesus is a nice person, so we must believe the same thing, Jesus. I'm good and you're good, we must believe the same thing. And we sort of downplay the scandalous nature of Jesus. These claims about Jesus, like he's a nice moral person, but that whole resurrection from the dead thing is a bit ludicrous, right? That sounds crazy. The whole like being God in the flesh thing, like that sounds kind of gnarly, like nobody believes that, right? And you can sort of claim or believe that if you want to, but that's not what Mark is writing or talking about. It's insulting what John proclaimed and what Mark was writing about because the only reason why John would be doing the things that he's doing and the only reason why John would be writing about the things that he's writing about and saying the things he's saying, like before the day of the Lord arrives, there's going to be a messenger. Like, that's John, and when the messenger arrives, he's gonna be proclaiming that God in the flesh is showing up, which is making this claim about who Jesus is. And so John's using all of this symbolism. Like, the good Jew that he is, like, he's talking about water, and he's talking about baptism and wilderness and being a prophet in the style of Elijah. And for them, they kept thinking, like, is God gonna show up? So what is John's message? It's not nice, right? It's not easy. He's appeared in the wilderness and he's preaching a baptism of repentance and a baptism of the forgiveness of sins. Verse seven and eight says, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Which by the way, fun fact about the book of Mark, the book of Mark, like you read it in one of your Bible translations, like everything's in like this sort of storytelling past sense, right? Like John the Baptist appeared, then he said, at that time Jesus came. But it's interesting in the Greek, it's in sort of like this present tense, like the storytelling is present tense. And, and so it, it makes it a bit more interesting to read, like when you're with your friends and you're telling a story about something that's happening, it's happening in the present tense as you're telling the story, but you're talking about something that happened in the past, but you're trying to make sense of it. And it's because you believe it so much, because you, you believe that it's so powerful that the way you're communicating is it as though it's happening right now. That's what's happening in the book of Mark. And so John the Baptist appears, he's preaching a baptism of repentance. This whole Judean countryside's coming out to meet him. They're confessing their sins, they're being baptized. And it's all like this like right now kind of action. And then this is John's message. After me is coming, after me is coming one more powerful than I. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Which again, John's referencing the Old Testament prophecies from the book of Joel about God pouring out his spirit on all people. Like John says, I got the water part. I can deal with the water. But the one who's coming after me, he's got the spirit part. <laughs> like get ready. John's message was about a change of direction. <laughs> and so when we talk about this change of direction, there's this Greek word, metanoia. And it's a really cool word, the, the Greek word, it's the Greek word for repentance. And so now in, in modern day, today, we think of the word, word repentance and it has a very negative connotation in our culture. We think of people standing, anybody been to like a Seahawks game or a Mariners game recently? And you got the dudes out there with the bullhorn and the massive signs that say like repent or turn and burn in hell, you know? You're like, this is super effective, you know? I'm sure this is, just like John the Baptist, like good on you for fulfilling the work of the Lord, you know? When we think of repentance, those are the only images we have to describe it. And it puts this negative connotation with this word that actually meant change. It actually meant a shift. 
a change in direction. And so metanoia, this word, means to change your mind. And it wasn't a negative word. It was just what you did when you decided that you needed a new change of direction. So you, you repent in our day, and it sounds like really preachy, right? Like Christianese. But might I remind us this morning that we all actually like it when people repent, don't we? <laughs> we like it when people change their minds to actually believe what it is we believe. To walk in, there's people in this room that I know that have given their lives to Jesus in the last year. I rejoiced on the day that they said, I repented and I gave my life to Jesus. I decided to live a new life, to change the direction of my life. My life was going this way and I repented and I shifted. When we heard, hear the word repent, we think of it like very individualistically, like it's just about them or it's just about me as an individual. But notice something about this passage. It's something that like boggles my mind, that it wasn't about individuals, right? It's about this whole people, like the whole Judean countryside. It's the people of Jerusalem. It's about this collective, this community of people, a society that's actually changing course. It's changing direction. And so repentance is good and it's a necessary thing. And it's not only about individual reactions, it's not action, it's not just about us, though that's part of it. It's also about the collective. It's about society. And so when John the Baptist is saying repent, he's calling for a nation. He's calling for like a, a people who change direction so that they can be ready for the new thing that God's about to do. We think of forgiveness of sins as being this individualistic thing, like it's just for me. Repent for the forgiveness of sins, which basically we take to mean as repent so you can get God to like you again. That's how we receive it. But that's not how forgiveness of sins is used in the Old Testament. Forgiveness of sins was this phrase that was always used about the restoration of the nation the restoration of the people, about things being set right again. And so we see this in the book of Jeremiah, that God calls for the forgiveness, that calls for his people to come back to him so that all of the nation can be rebuilt, that they can actually glorify the Lord again. This is the forgiveness of sins. And we think of forgiveness of sins as, well, now you can go to heaven when you die, and now God can stand like to be around me again. He can like put up with me. But for the prophets, forgiveness of sins was about a nation being brought out of exile, about a people being brought back to a place of dignity. And so John says, repent, make a change in direction to the new thing that God is about to do. And so to the, to the God in the flesh that's about to arrive and to set all things apart, and then that thing that the, the prophets have promised will actually finally happen. It's going to come to fruition. The forgiveness of sins, meaning the restoration of all things is going to happen. And so here's the thing about repentance and forgiveness is that grace has very little effect on those who feel they have no need for it, right? Grace has very little effect on those who feel as though they have no need for grace. And this is why the church through the centuries and the millennia has not really given up on this message of repentance. Now, if you've been around Anthem for a while, I hope that you can trust me enough to know that I, I believe first and foremost that God created you. He set your life into motion. And that God actually created you good. That you were made in his image. This is Genesis chapter one, that you were created in the image of God, that God delights over your life, that God loves you, that God is never gonna abandon you because of your actions, that God actually sticks with you, that he won't have to, that you don't have to convince God or trick God or to, to love you, that, that he does love you, that he actually is in pursuit of you. I also hope that you can understand that we all have places in our life that we're broken, don't we? Every one of us in this room has a broken piece in our life. We have an area of our life where we've made mistakes, 
We have an area of our life where we've harmed ourselves. Maybe an area of our life where we've harmed others. Maybe an area of our life where we've harmed this world. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about those churchy Christian words like sin and repentance. Like the admission that we need grace. The admission that we're not who we were all made to be. That we lost our way at some point. That we all carry the wounds and the scars and the traumas of the harm that was done to us. And the harm that we've done to ourselves and the harm that we've also done to others. And so when we preach about repentance and the forgiveness of sins, I know it can be a trigger for some people that have been around the church for a long time. In some ways they're thinking like this is just the old Christianity that I was raised in. You're just going to talk about repentance and want me to change my ways and want my sins to be forgiven, this is just about trying to make me a, a perfect person. But this isn't about a religion here. The truth is that God made you good. And I want you to hear this, that God made you in God's image, that that image is one of love, that God is for us and God is not against us. And because of that love, because of a God who made us to be with him, we owe it to ourselves and to those around us to be honest about the healing that we need in our lives. Again, grace has very little effect on those who feel that they have no need of it. And all God desires to do is lavish on us. Like to pour out his grace on us, the grace of forgiveness, the grace of healing, the grace of growth and maturity, walking with him, the maturity to be the human beings that God intended us to be. But if we... If we forever say, like, I have no need, then we basically keep ourselves from the grace that God wants for you. So in these few verses, we see that God's doing a new thing. A thing that sort of has implications on the ground for all of humanity, right? For our nations, for our neighborhoods, for our communities, our families, for our individual lives. That God takes the old and brings it to a conclusion in Jesus and that we owe it to ourselves to actually become students of the whole Bible, you guys. Not just the verses we want to read. Not just like pounding the epistles because we want to know all about the church age. And not just like pounding the book of Acts because we just got to recreate the book of Acts. But understanding the whole of scripture. Not just the parts we like. But understanding the whole narrative so that... You can, so that we can sort of come in on the narrative at part one and not have to like wonder what this is and what it's about because we picked up at season 39. So we have no clue what the backstory is. I'll tell you this, it wasn't until I was Bible, in Bible college that I actually started reading the Bible. I was 20 years old and I actually started learning scripture, reading scripture. And I had some professors that were helping me make sense connect the dots of sorts, put the puzzle pieces together. It wasn't actually until years later that there was like a hunger and a craving for God's word in me, not because I just wanted to be some preachy person that knew the Bible, but because the more I began to study it, the more the puzzle pieces began to fall into place, the more amazed I was at the God we serve. Because I began to realize like this wasn't about me just studying the books that I wanted to preach out of. It was about me understanding the whole counsel of scripture so that I could point back to help other people make, connect the dots, put the pieces together, understand that this is like a, a story that's been going on for 6,000 years, you know. This is something that was set in place in the book of Genesis and then this all culminates in Jesus and we worship Jesus and we love Jesus now. But to see how Jesus was the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy and people waiting for this moment to come, that this messenger would come on the scene, that he would pave the way for Jesus Christ the Messiah, for Yahweh to come in person to meet with his people. What an amazing thing. This isn't about me just saying, who wants to get saved this morning, raise your hand. Oh, I'm in. Well, that's great. You're in on a whole lot more than raising your hand and professing you want to follow Jesus. There's a whole story that you're now included in, starting from the book of Genesis that culminates in Jesus that's been passed off to you and I to actually be the messengers today. And I think it's so awesome, I'll invite the worship team up here, to, 
to think about John the Baptist and the parallels that you could relate to you and I. What are we doing today? We all believe that Jesus is coming back, right? Hopefully sooner than later, maybe before this next election, that'd be awesome. Um, But we believe he's coming back. And in the meantime, you are the ones that are paving the way for his return. To make straight the paths. When you think about that, that terminology, to make straight the paths, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about somebody who's out like walking on a trail and on this trail there's like potholes and there's sticks over like fall, that are falling over and there's trees on it and it's just a messy path and you can't really wade through it but you know that you want to create a way down this path that actually makes sense and is feasible for the people that are coming in behind you to begin to put things in place so that the path is walkable. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he starts filling potholes, <laughs> moving sticks, getting the trees out of the way, clearing the path so that Jesus can do what Jesus came to do. And he's prepping the hearts of the people in the process. And so this morning, man, I'm praying that the power of God would convict us to the point where we understand the implications of what it means to follow Jesus and to be modern day John the Baptist of sorts, messengers, people preparing the way, people that care a lot about who we're preparing the way for and how we're doing that, the way you live your life, the things you say, your generosity, your compassion, your kindness, modeling Christ's likeness in your life is preparing the way for Jesus. It's inviting people into relationship with him to understand him for who he is. And when we're talking about Jesus, again, we're not talking about just a nice moral teacher. We're talking about the God-man, the Son of God, who the first century Christians believed was God himself in person, that returned to this earth to set all things right. And that if we want to experience the grace of God, we have to begin as individuals and as a society to say that we're in need of the grace to begin with. And some of you have never professed that before. This morning, might I just encourage you that his grace is available to you this morning. If you'd reach out and ask for it, receive it, walk in it. Would you guys stand with me? If you're here this morning, and you're somebody that would like to be baptized. Uh, again, some of our elders will be posted up by the door back there. We'd love to give you the opportunity to be baptized this morning. We believe baptism is not the point of salvation. We believe uh, salvation comes by proclaiming with our mouth and believing in our hearts who Jesus was, that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death on our behalf and that Jesus rose again. And if we believe those things, we can be saved. But the awesome thing about baptism is the symbolism that we're promised that when we are saved, we are forgiven, that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, that we go down in the waters of baptism with Jesus and we're purified. He purifies us, he makes us righteous. It's by his grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so when we get baptized, what we're saying is, I've made this decision to follow Jesus. I'm telling it to all of you because I'm going to walk this out in front of all of you and with all of you. And we're in this together. This is a community effort. We're going to pursue Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you're here this morning and you'd like to be baptized, just go let one of our elders know and we'll make sure you can do that. Would you guys just bow your heads with me? If you're in this room this morning, and you just need prayer. I have no idea what it's about. There's something going on in your life. Maybe you're somebody who has struggled with the idea of forgiveness. Like how could you be forgiven for the things you've done? Maybe you're somebody who just has a hard time receiving God's grace. If you're here this morning and you need prayer, would you raise your hand? 
Lord Jesus, I thank you for those that raise their hands. With boldness and courage, they're saying they have a need. They're coming before you this morning. They're asking that you would meet it, that you would fill them up, God, that you would take care of that which is burdening them. Jesus, I pray that you'd bless them and be with them. I pray that they would see you clearly this morning, that all uh, the things that could get in the way to muddle the waters and, and, and to cause confusion, God, would just even in this moment be ten, begin to deteriorate and they would begin to have clarity of thought, to see you for who you are, to know that in you, Jesus, we are righteous, we are whole, we are new creations, and I thank you for that. I pray for your church this morning that we would be a people that are empowered by your spirit, but a, a church that's also fueled by your word, a people that will dig into your word, study your word, not because it's some legalistic thing we have to do or a checkbox we have to check, but because we want to know you. We want to know you in all your entirety, God. We want to know who you are, what you're about. We love knowing that you had us on your mind from the beginning of time, Jesus. That you created us in your image. That you love us, Jesus, and that you're with us and that we desperately need you to get through this life. And so, Jesus, be with us, comfort us, walk with us, empower us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to reach out to us or see what we currently have going on as a church, head to anthemcda.com or find us on social media at anthemcda. We can't wait to see you next week.